Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Let's Talk TEFL podcast. My name is Jackie and joining me is Jennifer. And today we're going to talk about tips and activities for lower level students. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Jackie. How are you? I am pretty good. I was down and out with COVID, but I am back, back in action now. So um, Jennifer and I have been trying to record these podcasts for um, it's been about two weeks now and a combination of bad Wi-Fi and traveling and COVID and just so many things. But we are finally doing it, which I'm quite happy about. Finally. Good good things yes. eventually <laughs> yes. happen. <laughs> yes. Waiting. Yeah, you'll um, anticipate and be more excited, I hope, because you waited so long <laughs> for this latest podcast episode. So lower level students, um, I think we both have taught a lot of lower level students. My experience is more teaching um, adults who are kind of at the beginner level. And how about you, Jennifer? Did you teach a lot of lower level students during your time in Korea? Yeah, I... Um... I had sort of an odd mix where I didn't really ever teach a lot of um, high beginner or low intermediate. I I went either at the extreme, like uh, kids who were very young and just starting to learn English or kids who had lived in an English-speaking country and had come back to Korea. Uh, I did teach some adults that I think you're probably very familiar with the situation of adults who were very proud that they had studied English for like 10 or 15 years continuously, day after day, week week after week. But um, I would say they would still have been pushing the boundaries of their skills to be in book two of any series that they were studying from. Yes, the false beginner. (laughs) I mean, I did always admire them for sticking to it, but I also thought I would have cut my losses. I studied piano for a year when I was a kid. And at the end of the year, I had learned one song. And I thought um, my instructor and I both thought that it would be best for the both of us if we parted ways. And so um, I chose to pursue interests that actually uh, interested me rather than interested my mother and that I would be willing to put in the work to get better. And that actually leads us perfectly into the first tip. So we're going to run down a few tips for teaching lower level students and then a few activities. So the first tip that I uh, that I have is to remember that people who are beginners at English, some of them have literally only been studying English for a few months or a year or whatever. So it's kind of hard to tell how good they actually be will be at English later on in a few years. But people that have been studying English for many years, like you mentioned, and who are still struggling in book two, um, always keep in mind that they are good at other things. (laughs) They are very good at science and math, or they're very good um, athletically. They can like play any sport well. Um, or they're very good at cooking and want to be a chef, or they're good at like fashion and hairstyles and that kind of thing. Just whatever it is, just don't assume because they are not good at English that they are dumb people or that they can't or don't know anything. Um, You just happen to be teaching them English. So it's, um, yeah, always just think they're good at other things. Um, It doesn't have to be English and that's, that's okay. So have some respect, some basic respect and kindness and just kind of meet them where they're at and 
that kind of goes a long way to fostering a good relationship. Um, they already probably feel bad about their English ability. So if you're kind to them and just encouraging, um, that will just be much better than, you know, being judgmental about their English ability. Yes. And I would further suggest, like, not only just the general idea that they are good at other stuff and you know, not to to write them off or assume that they're never going to learn or never going to improve, whatever. Um, tap into those things that they are good at. Sort of um, try to dig into what they are good at and what they enjoy as topics to increase their motivation because it is so easy to get demoralized when you're good at other stuff and this is something that you're struggling with, even if you're just a very new beginner learner, it it sucks to be at that point of the learning process when you just have all of it still in front of you because you have accomplished none of what you need to accomplish. Yes. So yes. yeah, look for those things and try to help your students maintain their enthusiasm. Yeah, any connections you can make with their hobbies or interests is always a good thing at any class, no matter what level of student you're teaching. So that's like definitely a good motivational uh, tip for low level students. So Jennifer, your tip is one step at a time. So what does that mean? Yes, and I, I added in there, don't be Phil Spector, which I realize is aimed at a, at a very specific age range of, of our listeners. <laughs> Um, so Phil Spector, of course, known for the wall of sound music production. Um, I'm going to say what was the 60s? <laughs> um, um, it's before my times. <laughs> uh, but uh, one step at a time in the classroom. Don't hit your students with a wall of sound. You know, don't walk in and say, OK, everybody, I want you to take out your books and your pencil and your notebook. Open your book to page 32. Today, we're going to study nouns. And let's go. Who? Why? Why haven't you done it yet? What are you doing? Hurry up. Get it done. <laughs> you know, take out your books. Okay, everybody's got their books out. Now take out your pencil. Take out your notebook. Give the instructions one at a time. And you can obviously speed things up a bit as your students get more familiar with these basic instructions and also the basic format of the beginning of class or transitioning to a new activity, but give them information, give them information in the most bite-sized pieces that they need. And, and don't push them to like up their game counterproductively before they actually have the skills to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not it's not productive to give instructions in a way that not every single student in the class will understand them. Um, instructions shouldn't be the challenge. They should just be the means to get some activity in class done. <laughs> so don't make it the challenge or the kind of the learning moment. Um, make them as simple as possible for sure. So um, my tip kind of is somewhat related. I, uh, it is review a lot. So Jennifer mentioned like not giving too many instructions and um, reviewing a lot that has to do with content covered in the class. So 
I prefer to teach a few things really, really well instead of like a million things that are just kind of fuzzy around the edges, because I'd rather my students walk out of my class with some solid things they can kind of grasp onto and use that as the foundation for more learning in their future. Um, if everything is a bit fuzzy, it's like, what have they really learned in class? Um, it's sometimes hard to say. So the way that I do this is I don't feel pressure to cover every single thing in the textbook. So if you get assigned a textbook to teach, um, I generally will choose a few things out of that textbook, a few key concepts, and then I will teach them. And then I'll also review a lot. So review can happen at the end of class, at the beginning of the next class. I sometimes do like weekly reviews, monthly reviews before a midterm or final exam. Um, I'm always reviewing. And I hope that by the end of the class, students will just be like, oh, OK, like we know this 100 percent already. We know the irregular verbs in the simple past. Like, why do you keep talking about it? And then if that happens, I just think, you know what, I've done some good work here because all of these students hopefully will never make a mistake with this, like, you know, irregular verse on the simple past ever again, I hope. And um, yeah, so that's just kind of my way of teaching. Um, other teachers maybe have different viewpoints about that. But what do you think, Jennifer? Would you rather teach a lot um, or a little really, really well? I much prefer being able to cycle through the information kind of like a spiral of like picking up new bits and pieces, but also recovering the same ground because the students will feel like they've mastered something a long time before they really have. They will recognize it and they'll say that they're bored with it, but that doesn't mean they've actually internalized it. That is a very good point. Yes, people think they are proficient in something. But when it comes to like they're out in the real world talking to someone from Canada or the US, can they actually produce it in that moment in time, in real time, when it, when it has to happen, not in the classroom? Um, and that's when someone has truly mastered the language. So that takes a lot of practice and quite a long time, actually, to get to that point. Yeah. And even much before that, just producing the language during an activity that is not focused on that language point that they have previously studied. So if they if they only can produce the correct language when they are doing an activity specifically focused on that language, whether it's the first time they've seen it or the 20th time they've seen it, but if they don't use that language in activities otherwise, then it's you're not done yet. So Jen, your next tip is about modeling. Yes. So model, model, model some more. This is, again, going with one step at a time and reviewing very much in the same path. Show them what you want them to produce. Don't just tell them what to do. Show them. Show them what the good answers look like. Show them what the good language looks like. Think out loud if you're doing like a writing activity or anything anything that you're normally thinking of an answer, think it through out loud. Yeah, I would do this always before doing activities. I would choose, like if it was a partner activity, I would choose I would explain it and then I'd maybe um, select like one of the higher level students in the class who I think would be capable of understanding what I just said. And I would choose them as my partner and then we would do a quick example. And um, in that moment, I would just see lots of the other students like, oh, OK, that's that's what it actually looks like. 
And at that point, I could like correct any misunderstandings or if that student I was talking to didn't understand it and they were one of the best students, I was like, oh, shoot, like I actually did not do a good job <laughs> explaining it. So it's kind of can prevent chaos, I guess, if you model model stuff a lot. Yes, exactly. And it also, as you're letting them do the activity, it prevents you from just putting out fires all over the classroom. You know, if you make sure that they really know what they're supposed to do, then you can sort of focus on correcting any errors that they're making while carrying out the correct activity. You're not trying to correct them in terms of getting them onto the correct task. Okay, so my next tip is about reading. So reading really is key to learning a language. And I know there are some kind of methodologies and um, like language learning schools that focus on oral production. And so I know that that is an option and that's how kids naturally learn their first language. They hear and then they speak. So there are some people that try to replicate that. However, I'm not sure that's the best option in my opinion. And um, for beginners, I like to focus on reading skills because if you are proficient at reading, you can learn English quite well at home by yourself. If you can't read well, it's actually quite a struggle to learn vocabulary. You'll be like learning the wrong pronunciation. Um, extensive reading is kind of a proven way that people learn language and you won't be able to do that. So I think there's a lot of reasons why reading is key. And it's also key to participate in almost any um, language class around the world. Um, you need to be able to read. And most classes will start with that as like the very basic Thing that you learn and I think that's for good reasons. So if you're teaching, yeah, especially something like like maybe some false beginners who've been studying English, but you notice their reading skills are very weak, um, I would spend some time on reading skills and kind of help those students get up to speed with that. What do you think, Jennifer? I, I think that is it 100%. Babies learn by absorbing all the information around them. Uh, partly because when they're babies, their brains are sponges, but partly because um, they are in an environment at all waking hours of receiving useful input. So unless you're going somewhere where you're going to have some pseudo mother telling you everything she's doing and making it like, oh, look, we're going to go to the park. Do you see a bird? Do you see a bench? You know, all the sort of little language that babies get all day, every day, really, and you know, for years, um, during which time they're not expected to produce the language. Uh, you know, I, I, if you're not going to have that, I think that taking that approach to second language learning is uh, not as efficient as reading. Um, yeah, I mean, study after study has shown that you learn so much more vocabulary through extensive reading than just studying vocabulary. And you internalize the grammar so much better. Um, the If you choose reading material that has a lot of dialogue, particularly if that dialogue is sort of true to life or true-ish to life, then you can also internalize the way people speak more naturally than you can just by studying dialogues in textbooks. 
I think it really is key. And um, it's kind of a rewarding thing to teach too. Like for absolute beginners, I've always liked spending time teaching phonics and teaching reading skills and teaching the rules. I don't know. I just like, for some reason, I just felt like, oh, I'm kind of unlocking this world of English or helping you unlock this world of English. And I always just, yeah, I always thought it was fun and kind of, all right, Jennifer. So your next tip is about breaking up the lesson into bite-sized pieces. This is slightly different from doing things one step at a time. This is especially for younger learners, but I think even with adults, uh, who are beginners, even with the other things that they are good at, if they can focus for extended periods of time, when your students are working with something that is unfamiliar, it is their attention span is going to be reduced. And so if you can break up the lesson into small chunks of time and with really young learners that are beginner I mean we're talking like three to five minutes you know do some very short activity and then transition to another activity and that other activity can be using the same language and their same language points it's just doing something slightly different enough to kind of wake their brain back up or reignite their motivation or enthusiasm rather than saying, okay, class, for the next 45 minutes, we're going to look at this list of words and then we're going to talk about different grammar you can use with those words. Yes, definitely. I like to keep things moving along in my classes, just kind of my general rule. Um, beginners and the younger children definitely need like the very short amount of time. Um, but as students get older, and then more advanced learners are able to handle kind of more like complex um, tasks and activities in class. So keep that in mind, either young kids or beginners, um, definitely more activities is better. And don't let it get stale. <laughs> Right. And I would even say, like circling back to reading, if you're doing extensive reading and if you're giving your students reading time, the lower their level, the shorter that time needs to be. You know, if you give a beginner student 45 minutes of free reading time, I can guarantee you they're going to spend about 37 minutes wishing the clock would move faster. So if they're really beginner and you want to give everyone silent reading time, which is much more effective than reading aloud, um, you need to make it into you know smaller, shorter chunks of time based on their fluency level. Okay, so I think that is good for the tip. So let's move into some of our favorite activities that we would use with um, the lower level students. So your first one is PowerPoint games. So PowerPoint games. I love PowerPoint games, mainly because they are really easy to just change the images and then it looks like a whole new game, but it only took you about five minutes of extra activity. And you can have a lot of different, uh, a lot of different looking games that are really all still just basically reviewing and quizzing the students in a way that feels more like a game. I would consider a class size carefully. Um, I think are better for smaller classes just to increase the student talking time. I know there's some teachers who use them for classes of like 30 or 40 people. And I mean, 
certainly it does create some excitement and fun in class, but it, in reality, it's one person out of 40 um, talking at any given time. So um, think about class size carefully and just um, if you have a large hours class, save this, you know, for a couple times a semester, not not in all the time. Yes. When when I used uh, PowerPoint games with large size classes, it would be uh, table teams, which still isn't ideal. So yes, there is definitely kind of a built in size cap if you're using, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're using PowerPoint games. But a good alternative if you have large classes is what, Jackie? Oh, they are board games. So <laughs> uh, board games are similar to PowerPoint games in that you can kind of just um, have a template and then you can like make your own English board game. And I want to say it takes me like five minutes. So I have a template with a bunch of squares, like go back one, change places with the person on your left, um, take a rest, vacation, um, move up three squares, like whatever, something like that. And it's basically just a grid of like five by five with numbers. So one through 25. So students know which way they're going. And then um, in the rest of the squares, I will put questions based on whatever I'm teaching. So one really good one that beginners might study is advice, like should, shouldn't. So I would write very small uh, problems. Like, for example, um, I hate waking up early to go to school. And then maybe another problem. Um, I'm so lazy. <laughs> or my grades are terrible, just something like that. And then if someone lands on that square, they have to give some advice for that problem. And I usually will do this um, in groups of four. So I put students in groups of four and they compete against each other. So they can each move with like a little eraser or just a little token or whatever they have kind of in their pencil case. And then um, the winner is the person that gets to like the final square. And um, yeah, it's kind of, it's actually fun. Like students actually love these games. and. I always kind of say like, um, don't fight with each other. If you have a disagreement about if someone is correct or incorrect, put up your hand and I'll be the referee. Um, because it's, it, and yeah, because like if a student is incorrect, they have to go back to the square they came from. Um, if correct, they get to stay on their square. So um, does that make sense, Jennifer? I feel like I explained it very quickly. It, it does. And I'll just add in uh, how I did board games, which was slightly different. Um, I would have, I had just a, a much more simple board game. And so it had the usual, you know, go forward to go back three, you know, skip a turn, take an extra turn, whatever. But it also had um, all the rest of the grids instead of having uh, information or, you know, language points for one specific lesson, it had take a card. And I had uh, like a rectangle on the board where I would put a deck of task cards or flash cards or whatever was relevant. So I could use the same board and change it with the cards that had to do with that language point. So smart, Jen. I feel like I should have <laughs> thought of that myself anyway. <laughs> it's but, fine. Uh, but just in any case whatever you do laminate everything for sure yeah I would I would often teach the same class like maybe five or six times in the week when I was teaching in Korean universities so I would laminate and then um, kind of just recycle it from class to class and um, some other topics that work super well for beginners would be like the simple past so I would ask questions like what did you eat last night 
um, did you go to bed early last night, whatever, and then students would have to answer the simple past or kind of like getting to know you introduction games, like where's your hometown, how old are you, etc, that kind of stuff. So it works almost with like any topic, you just have to be a little bit creative and um, use your imagination. Yeah. Right, Jennifer, so English Uno is your next English one. Uno is um, basically a flashcard game in the style of Uno. So I would take um, any sort of vocabulary, um, but especially, obviously, it works well with nouns. And I would make like four or six copies, depending on how long I wanted it to go. But each copy, like there would be decks, basically. So not decks, sorry, suits. So I would just put color codes on the card. So I'd have one copy of all the cards with you know, a yellow sticker and one with a green sticker and one with a blue sticker. So it ends up being like an Uno deck. And then depending on just how young or how beginner the students were, I would lower the requirements for what they were supposed to do to correctly have a turn. So if they were really low, really beginner, they might just have to correctly say what was on the card. But then I would sort of increase the difficulty with their level, make a sentence using this grammar pattern we've just studied, um, or you know, use the simple past to make a sentence that uses this word. And again, it'd be the same as Jackie said with the board games, you had to correctly use the language to continue in your turn. And um, the other students would be really quick to point out if they did not think somebody had correctly used the language. Yeah, I think a, a real benefit to that was that um, all of my students always all knew how to play UNO and they all enjoyed playing UNO. Yes, you don't have to explain the rules in depth. Generally, people will know, or at least the majority of the students in the class would already know how to play UNO. Okay, so the next one um, is Steal the Eraser. So this is one that's better for smaller classes, and it's kind of the ultimate activity to do uh, before an exam of some kind. So the midterm or final exam, for example. Um, so I divide the class into two teams, and then I put two desks facing each other, and I put like a whiteboard eraser in the middle in between the two. And then I have a list of review questions. So I'll start reading the question, like, um, where or maybe just for example uh like what did you eat for dinner last night and the first student to grab the eraser gets a chance to answer the question if they answer correctly they get a point for their team if they don't i read the question one more time and then the next person the other person who didn't grab the eraser they get a chance to answer if nobody gets it they don't get a point and then um, two more people come up but the key to this game is to stop reading the question when someone grabs the eraser. <laughs> so it can be risky. Like, what did you, and then someone might grab it, <laughs> thinking that you're going to say eat. So they might answer it correctly, but they might not. So um, it's kind of a risk. Do you wait for the whole question or do you grab the eraser? And when someone grabs the eraser, I hold up my 10 fingers and give them the 10 second countdown. So they have to be finished their answer within the 10 seconds. And yeah, it's actually, if you want to have some fun in class, this is it. <laughs> this is the whole yeah. game. And at the end, I'll generally do a bonus round. Like after everyone is done once, I say, okay, pick your best three players. And then we do a bonus round for like double points. 
So um, that's a nice way for a team who's losing to kind of make a comeback in that. Yes. Yeah, it's always good to build in some sort of little leveler if you're playing with teams. There's always a big risk that one person is always going to have all the points or one team is always going to have all the points. So if you can build in, you know, um, choose another team to switch points with or, you know, um, choose a team and steal all their points. (laughs) (laughs) That's me. That's me. I just do the double points. (laughs) That's tough, though. Stealing points from another team. Yeah, I kind of like it, though. Okay, so our time is running, running low, Jen. So um, where can people find you online? Oh, um, yeah, I've got a YouTube channel, Teach, Travel, Learn. I have big plans. I think I'm going to do like a 30 day challenge for myself and and put up some short video every day for 30 days. Perfect. And people can find me at eslactivity.org slash podcast is all the podcast info and then you can also find the links to my youtube channel tiktok instagram my books on amazon and all of the other things so eselectivity.org have a look around and i think that's it for now thanks for chatting jen and um yeah get in touch with jen and i if you have any questions or thoughts about um teaching lower level students probably the best place to find either of us might be on youtube so teach travel learn and then you can look up my name jackie bolin b-j-a-c-k-i-e-b-o-l-e-n okay until next time Bye, all right everybody. see you next time Bye.